0: Ayo, welcome to Anime Echoes. So now we're on the fourth light novel of Bakano. According to some, this is the novel that wasn't adapted all that great in the anime. One thing I can say for sure is that this novel felt like it had so many moving parts, so many plot points that it was more complicated than the two volume epic we just finished. So despite the Grand Punk Railroad Express arc being two volumes, the plotting didn't feel like we were jumping around too much in that one, That story felt like we stayed at a scene for much longer, but in this one, it felt like a lot of jumping around. I for one, really enjoyed this novel. I did sometimes feel like there was too much jumping around to just get one party to another location, but I also think that's the point. The whole idea of this novel surrounds the idea of information and the domino effect of information within people's lives. So it makes sense that in order to explore such an idea, you would have characters erratically running around and one thing always leading to the next. I'll start off with who my favourite characters were. So, I really loved these ones. Luck, Kate Gandor, and Eve Genoad. First off, I really enjoy Luck. He's a great character, and his character arc was really intriguing. I always wanted to see something like a character thinking about how gaining immortality actually made them have less vitality in their life, having less of a fire burning within them, That's something I thought would be the case for anyone if they got immortality, and seeing that idea explored through Luck was a treat for me. I won't be going into detail about Luck's character, that'll be in another podcast episode, so this will just be things that I enjoyed. I like that he's questioning whether he should be a Mafia member, especially with the fire inside him being such a small flame now. Further to that questioning, his entire family is apparently not cut out to be mafiosos, according to Claire. I think that's what makes Luck an interesting character. He doesn't just act like a brute or just accept immortality, he's quite reflective and questions himself. I like how introspective he can be. He's genuinely surprised that his other brothers have taken to the immortality so easily, that they're just going on with their lives. The thing that I relate to with Luck is the idea that he's worried that if he doesn't have a fire burning within him, then he should be cause for concern. That's something I've always felt like is an issue. If there isn't anything I really care about, then what's the point? By the end of the novel, he hasn't really solved that problem in its entirety for himself, and decides to read a book. He just kind of escapes into stories without addressing the issue within. That might be playing into the escapism theme that exists throughout this novel, but we'll talk about that later, but that felt pretty relatable. I think we can all recall a time where we used something else, whether it's a book, a tv show, some good food, daydreaming, Just anything to quiet the mind from having to deal with the problem in front of you. On another note, Luck's design is fantastic. I like that he's smiling mostly, but when he's serious, his eyes don't smile at all. Overall, Luck was a fascinating study, and I'm really interested to see where his character develops. What's the solution he finds to perhaps ignite the fire fully? Or is it about accepting that some flames have to die when circumstances change? I'm honestly not sure at all where his character is going but I think the trajectory has a lot of potential and I think personally I might have a lot to learn as well. Now moving on to Kate Gandor, so Kate was a huge surprise for me. I loved every second this person was on the page. She has a sweet relationship with Keith, but more than that it's her history that really sucked me in and pulled on my heartstrings. She's a pianist who played music in real time for silent films. These were films back in the day which had no sound playing, but as we all know, We have films that have far surpassed that now. You can hear and watch them from your phone now. She played as a pianist in real time, so the moment the film played, she would play the piano as background music. With the invention of audio recording, she ultimately had to feel herself becoming obsolete due to the advancement of technology. The way the author writes that scene in the theatre really stuck with me. And I remember when I read that scene, I had to take a moment. It was just so well done. I felt like I was transported back in time. Generally what's depicted is the positive aspect of growth of technology. We don't really get to see the perspective of those who get left behind. It's terrifying and fascinating at the same time to see what's lost with growth. But one person's success in making something amazing can result in a deep sorrow for someone else. We really get to see the shadow of technological expansion, or just the idea of growth in general. We get to see who and what gets left behind, and the shock of realising it's you. It's quite a chilling moment. Moving on from that scene, her personality seems very kind. She lets Roy and Eve stay the night. I also like how the image we get of her is of her back playing the piano. It really adds to the mystery surrounding her despite her overall kind nature. I'll stop gushing about Cabe because I go into more detail in another podcast episode, but I absolutely loved her. Let's move on to Eve. I warmed up to Eve pretty quickly. Maybe it's because the author uses Isaac and Miriam in the scene where we come to learn about Eve, and I really enjoyed those two, so by tying her introduction with them it made me want to know about her more, especially with her being prone to fantasy and thinking Isaac and Miriam are angels. Overall, she's just a kid. Also her being Dallas Genoard's sister, the guy who I thought was a complete idiot in the first novel, made me apprehensive at first. I was like, hmm, I don't like that guy, but the differences between the two characters were quite stark and the contrast was immediate. She was nothing like her brother. She's quite sweet and well-mannered. That being said, most characters that are sweet and well-mannered end up becoming kinda boring and I was worried her character would just meander, like the innocent character archetype that just gets thrown around and learns how harsh the world is. I wanted her to have more agency and, and luckily for us she has quite a lot in this novel. She becomes far more forthcoming as the novel progresses, such as asking Roy to find the Gandors, talking with Kate Gandor Her being forward with luck, and also the part where she loses it in anger towards Gustavo, they were all moments where I felt like Eve was a character with a lot of agency and power of her own. To me, she didn't really feel like a character that just got things handed to her. Though Eve didn't just have that going against her. I don't tend to like characters who are rewarded largely just because they like learn how to have resolve for the first time. I tend to get frustrated by those characters because they tend to learn something about themselves, and all of a sudden they are confident and things start working out for them. But it was different with Eve. While she does get rewarded for gaining resolve to keep pushing forward, the rewards don't just start piling up right after learning to be confident. She tends to oscillate back and forth between a confident person being shy and suffering. She felt like a real person, who has moments of confidence mixed with suffering. She was also quite introspective for her age. She would reflect on her motivations and think about what kind of person she was and what her actions really meant about her. Not only that, she gets pummeled with bad news about Dallas, her father, her brother, like news that will take anyone out. Despite all that, she constantly resolves herself back into it, but not from a place of just gaining confidence and now having a more positive outlook. She doesn't remove her own flaws from the situation, and she doesn't make the situation look better than what it actually is. This isn't some fake positive outlook that allows her to move forward. It's only through the genuine acknowledgement of her own flaws, Things like her selfish reason for saving Dallas, the anger she feels that she moves forward. They aren't just put to the side, they are firmly acknowledged to have significant weight, and it's only through the acknowledgement that she gain any reward like obtaining the location of her brother and getting help from people. That's what I like about her. She's a young character, and generally, they're just held with kid gloves. She wasn't. Now, I do have an honourable mention, and that's Edith. So I think is just a really cool character, and I really like how much she like cares about Roy. Like the level of loyalty she shows to Roy and how she really values promises was something I thought was precious. Those traits are very hard to come by, and I think Roy's super lucky to have her. Like he should be thanking the stars that he has her. On another note, the scene where she gets her haircut was hilarious. I swear the Gandalf family are like full of goofs. Especially Keith playing with three jokers. Like what, what was that? But yeah, like, that image of her, um, with her haircut was really great. Her relationship with Roy was ultimately really wholesome. I like how she's like his tether to the real world, or what makes him want to not exit the world. See the podcast episode with Roy and Edith for more details on them. So those were my personal favourite characters, though I do have Edith as a runner-up. Now, just random things I wanted to note, because I thought they were really cool. I liked that we got to meet Leah Lin Shan, It was pretty neat with her being Fang's sister. I like having new characters that are connected to characters that we already know. I'm quite confident that the author will be doing this a lot. Another thing is that I really want to meet Felix Walken, if we ever do. Apparently he's really strong and what's more, he apparently wants to lose his past. I'm not sure what that even means, but colour me intrigued. On another note, it was really great seeing Rachel talking to the president of the Daily Days. It's just nice to see her. I'm quite fond of her character. We get a mention of Ronnie from the Martilla family. Apparently he's super strong, so I'm keen to see him. We get a name for the head chef that was on the Flying Pussyfoot. Apparently his name is Gregor. I'm guessing we'll see him at one point because he's a named character now. It was nice seeing Claire again. He's always fun. I was kind of worried that he would take up too much screen time. See, I love Claire, but he's such a large presence that he can take away screen time from other characters. So I like that the author managed to make him in the background for the most part but then also still have him do an interesting reveal as well. As far as the villain is concerned, I thought he was kind of a joke at first. He didn't really strike me as particularly interesting, he was always getting one up by Bartolo or Beg, so he seemed like a fool. But with Gustavo, once he seemed to figure things out, he did become more menacing, not like incredibly menacing, but enough to feel like he was somewhat of a threat. He had an air of competency around him that he didn't have before once he learned who all of his opponents were, and they were all working together from his perspective. I think the villain was serviceable, he worked for the story, fortunately he doesn't really take up too much screen time which I thought was a good thing and I think it was a deliberate decision from the author. Like he tends to use him in very efficient ways generally to move the story along. I'll be going into Gustavo deeper in another novel but for now let's leave it at that. I thought Benjamin the butler and Samantha were nice additions to the story, they made for great characters for Eve to bounce off, they didn't really end up doing much at the end but overall I thought they were fine additions to narrative or story. I'll be mentioning the Gandors and the Daily Days and all the other characters I didn't get to talk about in their respective episodes, so you guys should look forward to those. Okay, that's all for my overall thoughts. Oh actually that's not all, Um, my rankings now are the 3rd volume is my favourite, then this one. Then the false volume and lastly volume 2. Though they're all pretty close I think. Okay let's jump into the themes. Let's start off with the theme of information. So information is constantly talked about over and over. We're always given little tidbits about the nature of information and how it changes and how we're influenced by it. Information is showcased through the character of Henry initially. He's constantly giving specific information to people such as Roy, and trying to see what chaos would come as a result of it. He doesn't respect the Daily Day's way of distributing information, unlike Nicholas. From Nicholas, you get the feeling that he uploads the value of neutrality from the business he works for, to not take a stand on where the information should travel. Henry, on the other hand, does not. He doesn't act on the behalf of the company. He selfishly acts at the behest of his belief that information is power. We understand more about Henry's obsession with power where he talks about how manipulating information can result in manipulating a variety of things. You can manipulate money, people, nations even. For example, he's the only one who knows that Roy is pursuing Eve. So he has an advantage there. He knows that Edith is looking for Roy, but he won't give the information about him away for free. He wants to twist the lovers' hearts. Having all the information, it makes him feel like a god for having it all. That feeling of knowing how all the information strings are attached, knowing how everything on the chessboard is moving, there's no drug that could ever replace that. No drug that could ever make him feel better than that. The aforementioned non-release of information to Edith from Henry, Nicholas sees that interaction happen. So he sees Henry not give what Edith wants to hear. While Nicholas does think he's an ass, he also thinks that what he did was kinda clever. That being said, Nicholas knows that Henry is within the belly of the beast. That he's perhaps being too playful with the information. The visceral way information travels means that it's really hard to control. He may be playing with fire. If information is all-powerful, anything that's strong will always have one foot in danger. And lo and behold, Henry does have to learn this the hard way. Claire or Vino basically threatens him over rail tracks, basically threatening to kill him. He's terrified by this incident. He comes back pale and everything. Apparently he looked like the life got sucked out of him, despite all this. Henry doesn't give up his power trip for information. At no point does he self-analyse that perhaps his relationship with information is also toxic in some way. He still believes that those without information are powerless, but now what he believes is that there is always a price to be paid for information. The better the information, the larger the price. Perhaps Jacuzzi walking in asking about the train robbery is exactly that, He paid with almost his life and now someone is in front of him, talking about the hush-hush incident at the Flying Pussyfoot. What an amazing result for the suffering he had to endure. I don't think Henry learns his lesson in any way. What Henry learns is that there are consequences or that there is a price to getting good information. He experiences that price. That you might lose a limb for the best information. I think he now just sees that danger as just being part of the course of getting better information. We obtain another window into the idea of information. It's how information spreads. When it's known that Vino is going after Gustavo, it immediately spreads throughout the Underworld. It's a window into how rapidly it can expand and take over the consciousness of others. Another depiction is that of how information, when strung together, can provide mental clarity. When Gustavo puts together that Eve, the Gandors, Roy, the Daily Days are all related in some way, it becomes clear to him who his enemy is. The confusion he's felt before dissipates and the same Gustavo who was raging without knowing why, who's constantly agitated, begins to transform a little. He becomes more competent. He immediately starts getting a group of hitmen together to launch his attack. It seems that when all of this information comes together in a way, it makes one feel like they know what's going on. It helps one push forward and actually have precision to direct their energy at something productive. What's more, The conclusion that Gustavo made that they were all working together the entire time was false. The information just happened to string itself together in that way. They ended up working together but the way they came to work together wasn't as magical and conspiratorial as what's in Gustavo's head. So what this tells us is that with information, you can gain mental clarity even if the narrative that's formed in one's mind is false. Despite this false narrative in Gustavo's mind, The information that has been swirling around always ends up tying themselves together to a point. A certain crescendo. The president of the Daily Days says this because the location of that crescendo is the Daily Days. Everyone acted at the behest of the information and eventually it all came together at that location. I'm sure everyone will have their own narrative about what the information meant or what they should interpret it as. But what's real or what's common is that the Daily Days is that crescendo point. Just like how in the first novel, everything revolved around the liquor bottle. In this case, everything revolves around information. This is not an object like the liquor bottles. It's something that's real in the sense that we know it exists. We all know information exists, but it's not tangible like a liquor bottle. We can't hold it. Information is an invisible web that binds people. If we were to make it tangible in any way, then it would be the fact that everything culminated at the daily days. That there was a physical location that people went to due to that culmination. What this means is that information has a tangible effect on the world even if it is intangible itself. But the thing that made any of that possible is the fact that human beings can create abstractions, that people can listen to information and make their own interpretations about it, and then make their own conclusions using it. This is what keeps information moving, If we did not abstract or think or try to make meaning out of information, then information would remain still and meaningless. It wouldn't be able to be perceived. Making interpretations about something seems to be a fundamental human act, and I think this ties to the author's assertion of linking information and humanity's suffering as being on the same track. We'll be coming back to this idea. Moving on from the theme of information, let's talk about the theme of dominoes. This is the name of the novel, so you know it's important. Isaac and Miria are setting up dominoes, and Fira is very confused, but it becomes this big event where everyone is in anticipation of the dominoes toppling over. Though Fira is still confused. He thinks, why would you line them up just to knock them down? Despite this pondering, Isaac and Miria finally push one domino piece down, though the one after that falls, and thus the pieces are falling one by one. As the dominoes were falling, Furo knows that they were changing colour, and basically, what appeared was the pattern of a phoenix. Apparently originally, the phoenix was one of the gods that hailed from Phoenicia. It wasn't originally shaped like a bird, but now it is. A phoenix is a phoenix because its flames reincarnate over and over again. This act of something happening over and over again is similar to toppling dominoes and putting them back up again. We're talking about cycles now. This general idea surrounding the dominoes and the phoenix pattern actually has to do with what it means to suffer as a human being and also information. I told you we'd be revisiting information again. See, with dominoes, after you push them down, you just put them back up again. That's the duty of those who topple dominoes. When you think about starting to topple a domino, it's the initial action or the first movement. To tip something over is the beginning action before everything else tips over. Without that first act, The dominoes don't topple over. Human beings are constantly taking that first action, with every action they take. They're essentially toppling a domino. They're creating a possibility. Once they create that possibility, they have to face the consequences of it. For example, if I buy bread, then I have to have all the consequences of buying said bread. I have to hold it, eat it, store it, reach for it. If the consequence is good, then it's all good. If the consequence is bad, then they have to face the jaws of death that accompanies it. And they can't get off the ride once you start. The dominoes just keep falling down. Even if I return the bread, that's still part of the toppling down. My life has required me to put my attention onto the bread just so I can return it. That wouldn't happen if I didn't buy the bread to begin with. We have to face whatever consequences that will rise because we made that choice in the beginning. And we make many, many choices in our lives. So despite the outcome of the actions, just like with the dominoes, we have to set up the dominoes again and proceed to topple them over again. So what that means is, people can't just sit still. Every action that's taken creates a possibility that essentially topples dominoes. Even inaction, so not doing anything topples dominoes. It's still a choice that's being made, you're just not doing anything. That act of creating a possibility through one's actions and suffering the consequences of those actions and then picking oneself back up again to do it over and over again? Miser believes that this, this is what humans are. This is what humanity is in a nutshell, an incredibly resilient group of people. A group of people who can be visually depicted by the phoenix. The constant death and rebirth is the constant putting oneself back up and taking action, the requirement that we topple dominoes again and again, and thus the phoenix is reflective of the resilience humanity holds. This cycle of death and rebirth, Miser believes immortals are outside of this chain, this cycle, specifically the death cycle. They've cheated death in some ways. Instead of going through the natural cycle of death and rebirth, they have but only death. If an immortal falls, then that's the end. From Miser's perspective, humans are much closer to gods than immortals are, because they keep the cycle going. They get back up. But what does this mean? It's not like humans die and immediately get revived, right? What does it mean for immortals to specifically be outside of the path of death and rebirth? What does it mean for humanity to be within that path and for them to do said path on a day-to-day basis by creating possibilities and toppling dominoes? Perhaps this could be it. In Buddhist culture, or an interpretation of Buddhism, the soul is reincarnated in a cycle of life and death over and over again. This is just what I've gathered and I'm sure there's many other interpretations of Buddhism But this is the one I'll be using. If you had good karma, then in your next life, you may be reborn again as an animal, a human, perhaps even a demigod, but the ultimate location is for one to escape that cycle, to achieve a state of nirvana, where they can escape all the suffering of the world. Right, so the ultimate state is to leave the cycle itself, to get to nirvana. Perhaps what the author is contending is that to be within the cycle itself is what it means to be fundamentally human, Can you say that if you leave the cycle that you're still human? I don't think you can. Using this idea, maybe humans, by continuing the cycle, by living their day-to-day lives, contrary to immortals, are able to eventually exit that cycle because they are part of said cycle. If you're not part of the cycle of death and rebirth, then you can't reach nirvana, hence humans are closer to gods than immortals. If you're not part of the cycle of death and rebirth, then you can't reach nirvana, hence humans are closer to gods than immortals. To leave the cycle is to be in alignment with god in a sense. Hence what immortals have done is that they have ended the cycle for themselves, but they did not manage to escape the cycle to reach nirvana. Instead, because they can't die, they are condemned to the human world for eternity, and eventually their souls just die by getting eaten. Just like Miser said before, they only have death. If an immortal falls, then that's the end. They aim for heights, but unfortunately, they aren't phoenixes like the humans are. When humans fall, they get back up. When they die, and then they face consequences of their next life. It seems there are larger cycles that exist for humans, like life and death, and smaller cycles, like the toppling of dominoes. By virtue of being part of cycles, they at least have a chance of reaching Nirvana. So without being part of the cycle itself, you can't escape from it to reach a state of less suffering. You can't reach Nirvana which is, in effect, to reach a certain godhood or alignment with God. The immortals literally cannot do this. They have to be part of the human world. Now before I mention that this phoenix analogy and dominoes also have to do with information. When the dominoes falls, it creates a coloured image of a phoenix at the end. There's something on the other side of the dominoes. Also when information all comes together, Gustavo gets a real sense of mental clarity of what's happening but prior to the crescendo of information, or the dominoes all falling, there's a real sense of ambiguity for Gustavo. Don't really knows what's going on or what's going to happen, and even after that, we put the dominoes up again, or we start collecting information again, and we don't know what's going to happen. Information just keeps atrophying or changing, like the phoenix itself. It keeps changing, dying and reviving itself, in a cyclical fashion. And this is why information is so hard to grasp. It's because of this constant change. And we all know that being human is very difficult and hard to grasp. So in effect, both information and being a human being is hard to grasp, hard to comprehend, hard to fully understand. And that's why humans and information are so chaotic, so hard to pin down. Because unless you understand the cycles, unless you see the big picture, everything in life can feel very chaotic. So what's the solution to this chaotic mess? It seems to be a fundamental part of human life. But is there a solution or a small technique people can use to make it easier? To make living easier? All of this, I think, helps the author make his main case. That information, while fundamental to one's experience or intrinsic to humanity, is ultimately not something reliable. Just like human beings, it's too fickle to remain in one spot. Too chaotic to ever solidify into something fully reliable or constant. Just like Gustavo, There would be a lot of frustration on our part prior to ever having any mental clarity. And even with that mental clarity, the information will change again. It will renew itself into something unknown. It's not like Gustavo had information that Claire was undercover. The mental clarity was gone, just like that. You kind of have to wonder if it's even worth all the effort trying to understand everything. Therefore, in the end, there's a line in the novel that says you must rely on your own instincts and experiences. You must rely on your bodily sensations, what you see before you. That instinctual simplicity that makes you turn your brain off and be simple. Now who embodies that simplicity? Well, it's Isaac and Miria of course, who else? And I think this is why Firo states that if everyone was like Isaac and Miria, then world peace would happen. He recounts how much they help everyone around, specifically himself and Ennis. Firo sees Isaac and Miria almost like the dominoes that topple over. But they affect everyone positively. So despite acting at the behest of information, despite having to topple dominoes every day of their lives, what's different about them? What is it about Isaac and Mira that makes them special? Well, it's because they are simple. They aren't complicated. They don't overcomplicate what they see before them. They basically just act on instinct. In a way, they're reliable. It's sheer simplicity that allows them to have some level of clarity. If they weren't seeing some level of truth, then their actions wouldn't actually help anyone. It wouldn't actually provide any benefit to anyone, but they do. They cut through the complicated aspects of life by being simple, by being straightforward. In a way, despite those two being condemned to immortality, if their simplicity helps everyone, then perhaps with them living to eternity, maybe they can actually bring world peace by helping everyone but themselves. They could help all the human souls reach Nirvana, and then let their souls end by getting eaten by someone, or maybe they'll live forever. While this is a very utopian-sounding and hyper-positive perspective, I think that's the point of these two. They have always been hyper-positive, and their simplicity could save the world. Maybe what the author is saying is that we all just complicate everything by thinking too much, by being too reliant on information. Maybe we're all too far up in our heads and not within our bodies. It's not dismissing information as useful, far from it, but a plea for a shift in perspective. That perhaps we should also let go of information at times, and maybe half the time, be simple. Let our hearts be open, and just simply act. Now that's all for the themes of information and dominoes. I won't be talking about the escapism theme here, only because I think it's better left for next week, where we'll be going through Roy, Edith, and Beg. Thanks for listening and I'll see you guys next week.